today, I will be reading from Mark 15, 40 through 16, verse 8, and you can follow along on the screen as I read the passage aloud. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen, and he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is God's word. Good morning, church. Let's pray. Jesus, just so grateful for your presence here this morning. So grateful that you have gone ahead of me, you've gone ahead of this message, you've even gone ahead of this moment, and you've prepared our hearts to receive it. This morning I found myself uh, just spontaneously thinking of that old school charismatic song, I went into the enemy's camp and I took back what he stole from me. Jesus, that's where I'm planting my feet this morning. As a congregation, God, we wanna take back by your authority, what the devil has stolen from us. Lord, we want our hope back, we want our joy back, we want our celebration back, we want our family back, we want our breakthrough back, we want our healing back. There's a lot of stuff we want back this morning, Lord. So Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is so, so hungry this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2022, the Today Show wrote an article on a hospital chaplain named J.S. Park. The second-generation Korean-American chaplain works in a hospital trauma center in Florida, serving people in their most vulnerable moments. Some of you may be familiar with him. He's been sharing his experiences on grief and loss and his work on Instagram, and has grown his following to over 90,000 followers. His stories are resonating. In the article, he is quoted as saying, 
A chaplain is like a mix between a priest and a therapist. When a person grieves, every, very often they're falling. Falling into a sudden vacuum of loss. Falling into hard and overwhelming emotions. Falling into a new normal. Literally falling on the floor. In many ways, I'm trying to catch them. Not to stop their grief, but to be with them on the way down. The striking description of grief, the overwhelming feelings, the falling, the sudden vacuum of loss, is the perfect description for where we find ourselves in the passage of Mark this morning. Jesus is dead. The one everyone had put their hope in, everyone had given up everything to follow, they'd been committed to him, they put all their trust in him, and he's gone. And not only had they lost him, but they'd left him. They lost him to death, but they carry the guilt of knowing that they, in his final moments, had fled, had abandoned and betrayed him. So this grief, this falling, is tinged with the sense of guilt and responsibility. Surely there's confusion, surely there's fear. No one is anticipating a resurrection. This week, one of my coaching clients said to me, I mean, is it really worth it, Ruthie, to keep on hoping? I mean, is it really worth it to hold on? Am I hoping for the wrong things? Like, why is hope so difficult to keep alive? Got me thinking, and later that day, I went to the kitchen, was with my husband, we were preparing dinner, and I said, hey, babe, do you resonate with the feelings of hopelessness? Without any pause whatsoever, he said, yeah. I was like, why? And he said, mm, the situation in the Ukraine, the state of the world, San Francisco news and all our problems, climate change, wildfires, the devastation of Maui. And he looked at me as if to say, do you want me to go on? Like, it's not hard to come up with reasons to feel kind of hopeless. And we don't even need a world tragedy to make us question whether it's really worth hoping for, for anything anymore. Maybe you've had a really tough work week and you're just wondering why you bother. Maybe it's a fight with a partner. Maybe you've been on that muni train and someone's cussed you out for literally no reason. You're like, I'm done with this city. It's not that hard to feel disappointed and bleak. Maybe it's a recent history of disappointment and setbacks. Like, what's the point? Is this really it? Is this as good as it gets? It's not hard to reach for hopelessness, to access that kind of story. We don't need any convincing that pain and suffering and disappointment are part of the human condition. But I wonder this morning, how robust is our story of God's goodness? In his book, All Things New, John Eldridge describes hope as the confident anticipation that goodness is coming. Not positive thinking or silver lining, but a rock-solid foundation that we build our lives on. So if I asked you today, do you have hope? You might give me some well-rehearsed Christian response. But if I asked you, do you have confident anticipation that goodness is coming to your life, to your family, to your city? Well, you might need a few more minutes to ponder that. Because maybe you don't feel so confident. Maybe anticipation's not the word that you would use to describe your daily posture. I mean, goodness, what does that even look and really feel like? And the idea that it's coming, well, you might question that or you might simply just wish it came a lot quicker. 
But church, I wanna say this morning that the moment we give up anticipating goodness is the minute we've forgotten the power of the resurrection. When the women arrive at the tomb, they are not hopeful. They are not confidently anticipating goodness. They're wondering to themselves, how on earth are we gonna roll this massive stone? They're, they're, they're thinking like, how are we physically gonna get in and tend to his body? They are not expecting Jesus to pop out and be alive. We have to eliminate that thought from our minds. There was no framework for this. No expectation of it. As N.T. Wright says, as far as the ancient pagan world was concerned, the road to the underworld ran only one way. Death only goes one way. No one comes back. And even for Jews that believed in some kind of end of time resurrection, they weren't anticipating it right here, right now. Things were hopeless. The women arrive at the tomb and, and it's empty. And you know, if you read through the various gospel accounts, you're gonna hear all different perspectives on the various people that Jesus appeared to. But one of the things that is consistent across all four gospels, it's come Sunday morning, that tomb is empty. See, the resurrection reminds us of the unexpected, overflowing, unrestrained, and relentless goodness of God. No one saw it coming. They're totally taken off guard. And while they're worrying about the minor details of moving a stone, God was in the process of moving history. See, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the greatest demonstration of God's goodness. The psalmist says that God is abundant in his goodness. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't withhold any good thing. He's overflowing in his goodness. You see, the goodness of God breaks through in the unexpected moments. The bleeding woman who had tried everything, she touches Jesus, the hem of his cloak, and she receives healing. The dead girl whose father said to Jesus, don't come, there's no need, she's gone, raised to life. The crowds of hungry people fed and cared for, the despairing traveling companions on the Emmaus Road without hope for the future. You see, no one saw God's goodness coming and yet there it was. This is the kind of goodness that turns kingdoms upside down. Like Mary in her Magnificat, she sings, God brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. And while we're on the subject of the lowly, let's talk about the women. No one would have put the women at the center of this story unless it was true. The truth is, in that day, in that time, women's testimony was worthless. No one would have just made up a story and put women at the center of it. This is a true story. The women are the witnesses. God placed them right at the center of this story. Caitlin Cannell Kim in her article, Resurrection Women, she says this, in almost every corner of this world, in almost every epoch of recorded history, women have been entrusted with the care of bodies. We birth them, we feed them, we wash them, we mend them, we comfort them, we fret over them. So it is nothing short of utterly unremarkable that it's the women who arrive at the tomb of Jesus to anoint him for burial. It's obvious, it's commonplace. The women who fed him and washed him and looked after him in life come to care for his body one last time. This is where the story is transformed. This is where it ceases to be ordinary. Women, we expect them to show up. 
They'd been with Jesus along the way. They'd been with him in Galilee, in Jerusalem. They traveled with him. You know, in the book of Mark, the only people listed as actually caring and ministering to Jesus was angels and women. This is what we anticipate. Women show up at these moments. But what we don't anticipate is that they would be the witnesses, the first ones. She goes on to say that women coming to tend to the body of their Lord and teacher and friend came to mark his end with one last act of kindness. What they find instead is a new beginning. They are witnesses to his triumph, his ultimate and paradigm-annihilating triumph over death, and brokenness, and everything that could ever claim to come between us and God. He stands before them, his body transformed and brilliant, and commissions them to start telling the world about what they have seen. You see, this is the goodness of God. The most unexpected and lowly people of the time, women, have been entrusted with God's great message of resurrected, resurrection, commissioned to go out to preach the good news. And if you are a woman here today, or even a young woman here today, a teenage woman, I wanna say to you that we are still entrusted with this message, and we are still commissioned to go out. You see, God saw fit to hinge the entire resurrection announcement on the voices of women. We know from the other gospel writers that despite their fear, they did tell the news boldly. And this message needs to be told again and again and again. And I think we're better than in the church that women are heralds of God's goodness in the world. Forerunners and messengers of the heavenly kingdom. Ladies, we're not overlooked. We're not second best, spoken over, unrecognized or silenced. We are the storytellers and we are the witnesses. And I wanna remind the ladies in the room today that we are central to this story and alongside our brothers, we are commissioned to tell the story of Jesus, to tell the story of God's greatest demonstration of his goodness. Church, let me ask you, in what areas of your life have you stopped anticipating the goodness of God? Like in what areas of your life have you stopped praying? Have you stopped believing, stopped hoping? It's just like, ah, I don't know. I've moved on from that. I've evolved. I no longer trust God for that. I no longer pray for that or believe for that. Or that feels too painful. That feels too uncomfortable. Where have we stopped anticipating the goodness of God? Anticipating implies a readying, a preparing how have we stopped anticipating? When the women arrive at the tomb and they find it empty, they encounter an angel and he says, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. In Mark 14, he'd said to them, after my death and resurrection, I'll meet you in Galilee. Why Galilee? Why is this place so important that it's mentioned before his death and the angel repeats it in the empty tomb? No doubt this was a special place for the disciples. I'm sure they had memories there. Maybe you know what that's like too, special places you have memories. I've lived in San Francisco for 24 years. I have a lot of memories in this city. My husband and I lived the first years of our marriage right at the corner of Castro and 18th. And it was crazy times and the best of times. And every time we drive past there with our kids, we point up to the third story window and we tell them the stories of like, you know, living up there and all the fun dinner parties we had. Remember those memories and we retell the stories. 
I also have really fond memories of Twin Peaks. Uh, I had some really powerful encounters with God up there. I remember a couple of years after I moved to the city, I was up on Twin Peaks just praying, and I felt God say to me, God, uh, Ruthie, would you give your life for this city? Like, it's a, it's a memorial place for me. It's a place where I said, yes, God, I'll stay. I have some really um, interesting memories at Grace Cathedral. When I was in my 20s and I had short pink hair and I was in an emo stage, I... <laughs> I would walk up the hill and I would sit outside of this grandiose church overlooking the city, pontificating in my journal about these existential things of life, right? Weeping and all emotional and, you know, and every time I go drive past there, I smile at myself. And I think that was cute, Ruthie. <laughs> like, we have these places that mean things to us, right? They're kind of nostalgic. So is that why Jesus took them back to Galilee? I mean, is it so they could just go back and think of like the good old days and tap into that wistfulness and that nostalgia? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think Galilee was more than just a familiar place with wonderful memories. See, Galilee's where it all began. Jesus is taking them right back to the beginning. This is a place of presence and power. Here in Galilee, the disciples were called and named and sent on mission. We know from Mark 1 that this is where Jesus makes his first proclamation. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then he's walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and he stumbles across a bunch of men. And he's like, hey, come follow me, and I'll send you out to fish for people. This place is pregnant with meaning and purpose before all the pain, before all the struggle and the persecution and the difficulty, before the cross. This is where Jesus first said, come be with me. Come follow me. And now here on the other side of the cross, I think part of why Jesus took them back it was to rethink it all. You see, he didn't turn out to be the Messiah that they first said yes to. They said yes to the rabbi that called them, but we know because we've studied the book of Mark that they had a very particular idea of who they were following. And now here, on the other side of the cross, we realize, here's the suffering servant. Here's the crucified Christ. Would they still in? Would they still follow him? I want us to consider our good friend Peter for a while here. I'm gonna pull from the book of John because John writes a little more extensively about what happened when they meet Jesus in Galilee. It says, afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. When the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, writing in the book of John about himself, said to Peter, <laughs> I just love his confidence, um, said to Peter, is it the Lord? And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, 
he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and he jumped into the water. And he jumps in and he runs to Jesus. And this is when you have that restoration moment where Jesus says, do you love me three times? But here they are, they've made it to Galilee. And then Peter's like, I'm gonna go fishing. We're not told exactly why he goes fishing, but I imagine there was some sense of nostalgia. Like, hey guys, we're back here. This is what we always have done. We have some great memories out here. I imagine to some degree too, it may have felt like, gosh, I could use a win right now. Like I could just use going back to something that I love and that I enjoy and that makes me feel good. So he goes back to fishing, but then he totally fails at it. And he catches nothing. I mean, Peter's life sucks right now. He has totally given his life to this person that's dead. He has walked away from him, denied him, cursed him. Like, he's hopeless. He's like, what's going on? Okay, I'll go fish. Can't even do this right. So he's in the middle of this moment, and Jesus appears. And of course, performs this amazing miracle, and Peter runs to him. Church, I wanna suggest this morning that for many of us, when we are feeling hopeless, and we are feeling disappointed, we go back to the safe, familiar place. We go back to that place of guarding ourselves from hope. We go back to, well, I won't hope for much, so I'm not disappointed. I won't anticipate goodness because that's never been a part of my story. I'm not a dreamer. I don't pray big prayers. I've given up on that. I won't try. God would have to grab me and shake me to make me have hope in that area again. We go back to that place, hedging our bets, being cautious, remaining skeptical, taking no chances. We think, I'll just be safe here, I'll be happy here, I'll be fine. Or maybe we climb into the boat of nostalgia. We revisit those old memories, we reread the journals, we tell the stories, we're wistful about the way things used to be, the way the city used to be, the way our marriage used to be. Maybe back before kids when we weren't so exhausted, when our career felt life-giving and actually meaningful. Maybe back before COVID. Church, I wanna suggest that this is all misdirected hope. All misdirected hope. That we would not find life in our past and we will not find it in the illusion of our safety. Church, your future, your family, your community does not need your nostalgia, it needs your faith. We are not gonna find life in the guarding of our heart from hope. See, there's nothing wrong with a bit of storytelling and revisiting. I'm still gonna laugh every time I walk past Grace Cathedral and think of my emo self. But you know what? I don't live there. And if it doesn't launch you forward, then it's not serving you. See, goodness is calling to us from the shore of our life. And it's saying, I see you out in your boat. I see you going back to what's comfortable. I see you just kind of hedging your bets and being guarded and being careful. And goodness is calling us forward to say there is more. We can trust Jesus. The goodness of God is right here, right now. The goodness of God is in your future. See, Jesus didn't take them back to Galilee to take them backwards, but rather to invite them forwards. 
Church, can we let go of our expectation long enough to step into anticipation? Can we let go of the expectation of how it should be and what it should look like in our timeline? Can we let that go and can we step into anticipation that the goodness of God is coming to our life? Jesus is where we put our hope. Goodness calls to us. The presence of Jesus is the source of our anticipation for goodness. Not in our circumstances, not in our past, we put our hope in Jesus. We anticipate goodness because of his presence. Matthew 28, Jesus says, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Not just with the perfect ones, not with the special ones, not with the ones that you know, have never done anything wrong, but Jesus says, I'm with you. And this promise of his presence is what brings hope. So let me ask you a question. Have you decided today that you wanted to live in confident anticipation of the goodness of God? How would your life need to change? What would you stop doing? What would you let go of? What would you start doing? What would you step into? What does it look like for you to confidently anticipate the goodness of God. Aside from being a place of presence, Galilee is also a place of power. See, Jesus emerges from the wilderness here, having overcome the devil. Galilee's where he drives out evil spirits, heals the sick, calms the demonic storm. Let's not get overly squishy about the resurrection. Jesus rising from the grave is absolutely a promise of his presence, but it's also a promise of his power. We hold on to hope, we anticipate goodness because the resurrected king has power over darkness and death. In Ephesians 1, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and it's that famous prayer where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, would be opened. And this is one of the things he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above a rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Listen, in this scripture, Paul uses four different words for power. He's literally exhausted the Greek language in order to communicate to us that when the resurrection took place, there was a power, a supernatural mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead. But it didn't just raise him from the dead, it elevated him above all principalities and powers and rulers and names and this age and in the one to come. Church, the resurrection is not this squishy little story where Jesus says, oh, I love you. It's so cute, I've got so much love for you, but I've got nothing else for you, just deal with life. No, he's like, I love you, you've got my presence, and guess what, you've got my power too. You see, we have a resurrected king that is all powerful. He is over kingdoms and dominions and authorities, and this resurrected king does whatever the heck he wants to do. So I don't know what you're facing in your life right now, that you feel powerless. I remember when we were trying to get a home in San Francisco and everyone was like, oh, you're taking on the real estate in San Francisco. Yes, I am taking on real estate in San Francisco because you know what? My resurrected king, he's above it. 
You're going to raise your children in San Francisco? Yes, I'm going to raise my children in San Francisco. How are you going to pay those bills? You know what? I think that's covered in Ephesians 1. He's elevated above all of that stuff. So church, if we are a people of the resurrection, then let's get ready for the goodness that's coming. See, that dream that feels dead and buried, get ready, resurrection power is coming. That family relationship that you feel like this will never be restored, I cannot see a way forward, ready yourself for the goodness of God. That diagnosis or that financial setback or that place in your life where hope is dwindling, anticipate the goodness of God. We have his presence, we have his power. Church, we're a resurrection people. This is where we shine. This is literally our thing. Our entire faith is based on one who went down to that place that everyone thought was just one way to death and then he came back out. We are a resurrection people. We are a people of hope. You might be here this morning, you say, Ruthie, I don't feel like a person of hope. I feel like I'm dwindling. I feel discouraged. I get it. But I'm gonna speak over you that we are resurrection people. And that hope is available to us this morning because of the presence and the power of Jesus. So what now? What do we do? We live between this promise of Jesus is one day coming back and everything's gonna be made new. But we also still live in this kind of broken world with all the ugliness and the pain. What do we do here? What is our role as followers of Jesus if we are to anticipate goodness? And he writes, says that if Calvary means putting to death things in your life that need killing off, if you are to flourish as a Christian, as a truly human being, then Easter should mean planting and watering and training up things in your life, personal and corporate, that ought to be blossoming, filling the garden with color and perfume and in due course, bearing fruit. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the cruciform life. We've been talking about living surrendered to God, extending his kingdom in the world, and it feels impossible unless we remember that we have the power and the presence of Jesus. So what do we do now? We get about God's work, bringing goodness into the world. We plant and we water and we fill the garden of our life and the garden of the life of our city with color and perfume. We immerse ourselves in the resurrection story and we tell ourselves every day, this is my story. Goodness is coming. I have access to the presence and the power of Jesus. We ready ourselves to receive it, expanding our imagination, and we cultivate it in the world around us. How are you planting and watering in your world? in your family, in your workplace, in your community? How are you adding color and perfume that we would be a message to the world? Goodness is here. Goodness is coming. I wanna encourage you, church, go make art. Bake a cake and give it to your neighbor. Vote. Run your business with kindness 
empower women, fight for racial justice, dance and play, worship and pray, dream big dreams, be brave, be bold, invite people to Alpha, climb out of the boat, climb out of the boat and run to Jesus. Goodness is calling to us and we get to participate in that work.